0: Hello, and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Center's Director of Resources and Technology, and in this episode, we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. With me today to talk about 9 11 and its impact on how the nation responds to mass violence are Dr. Dean Kilpatrick, the Director of the NMVVRC. And Ann Seymour, the uh, NMVVRC's Associate Academic Program Director and longtime victim advocate, welcome to the MVP, Ann and Dean.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you, Dan.
0: The terrorist attacks that happened on September 11th in 2001 were just a, a devastating and a defining moment for our country and also had just an enormous direct impact on survivors and community members across the country in new york city boston san francisco where a couple of the flights were headed shanksville pennsylvania washington dc and of course everywhere else as well as among the community of the folks who work at the pentagon and the department of defense dean How did you find out about the September 11th terrorist attacks and what were your initial thoughts about what this would mean for the country?
1: Dan, my recollection is, is that we were actually having a faculty meeting for our center. I mean, not for the mass violence center, but for the, uh, the crime victim center and, uh, someone either online or, or somewhere, uh, possibly got an email that there had been a a plane that crashed into one of the towers, the Twin Towers in New York. And so we immediately uh, began to try to get more information. And then when the second plane crashed into the World Trade Center tower, the other tower, we realized that it had to be not just an accident, but a probably a terrorist attack, and uh, began to get more information. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, a a third plane crashed into the Pentagon and all hell broke loose. So at that point, uh, being people who worked with trauma, who had done work with mass casualty incidents before, we knew that this was a major national tragedy and that also it was going to be an inflection point for the nation. You may recall that, that some of the first estimates based on an average workday, they were estimating that up to 50,000 people would, would ordinarily be working in those towers and so they were expecting there to be uh, you know, that many uh, deaths. So it was obviously a really big deal and something that was clearly going to change things for the nation. We also understood that given the scope of it and not to mention all the media coverage that was going on, that this would not be just a local New York thing. It would not be a Washington, D.C. thing. It would be something for the entire nation. And so there would uh, we immediately began thinking, I mean, what should we do um, We knew that there was going to be a need for for information uh, and and guidance uh, uh, from us uh, to share our our expertise and knowledge.
0: Yeah, I I do remember that faculty meeting uh, and and I think Connie had her black and white TV going and and just sort of those images are are seared in my in my memory. And and what about you? How did you find out about the terrorist attacks?
2: Well, Dan, I was on a flight from D.C. to Detroit when our plane, uh, without any announcement, made a nosedive landing into the Detroit airport. Um, I immediately, uh, it took me a while, but I immediately got in touch with the Office for Victims of Crime within the Justice Department, and then with a few other victim advocates who I knew would be responding specifically in New York, but also at the Pentagon, which is across the river from where I live. I remember I couldn't rent a car until September 12th. And I also remember driving home like a bat out of hell. And the two times I stopped, uh, local folks heard me talking on my, I don't know if you remember the old school flip phones, and I was just having conversations. And I didn't pay a cent for coffee or food or gas between Michigan and D.C. due to the kindness of, of total strangers. And I, and I recall finally arriving into D.C. I live on Capitol Hill, and I remember seeing the Capitol lit up at night and just pulling my rental car over and and weeping. And then shortly thereafter, um, engaging with the Office for Victims of Crime and what was countless uh, first responders for the next six or seven weeks, doing basically whatever was needed to respond to the communities that were impacted, but certainly our nation as a whole.
0: It's interesting about how we all seem to have sort of some of those flashbulb kinds of memories that um, we associate with that day um, and and how we reacted to it, Dean. You mentioned our center, the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center. Um, what do you remember about how how we as a center responded in the the few days and you know several weeks after the attack?
1: Well, I, th- I think. Part of what we did was based on what we knew in our prior experience. And as I mentioned, uh, we had done work in the area before on mass casualty incidents and and two that came to mind right away were in 1993, uh, we did a project that looked at the mental health impact of the L.A. riots, which are sometimes referred to as civil disturbances, that happened in 1993, in which large parts of Los Angeles were uh, were really disrupted by um, protests, uh, many of which were violent and included burning buildings down and um, and and whatnot. Um, following the verdict in the Rodney King case, and so. We had also then done, and you recall this because you and Connie Best were were uh, two of my colleagues on this, but we did a study uh, for the Office for Victims of Crime about the Pan Am 103 bombing that occurred in December of 1988, um, in which the plane was blown up by what turned out to be a Libyan terrorists killing, uh, I think it was 300 people or something like that in the plane and on the ground. And so OVC had, um, had asked us to do an evaluation of some of the services and that involved our doing uh, a survey uh, and interviewing uh, a large number of surviving family members of those victims. And ironically, we had just sub- I think it was in July, had submitted the final report in which we had described a lot of the mental health effects that victims had. And and we had also uh, found that some of the things that the Office for Victims of Crime was doing in that case in in terms of keeping uh, family members notified about what was going on and providing them with services and giving them access to mental health services and how many victims did not access those services, that we had made a lot of recommendations, which actually uh, OVC had on their desk at the time when they started thinking about, you know, how they were going to respond to this incident. So basically, what we did is we wanted to share information about, uh, you know, how these things affect communities, with uh, with the communities themselves, with the mental health professionals, with media and policymakers, and this included something which we were very aware of that the overall risk of being killed by a terrorist was actually quite low for most people, and so it was. And that people were were really concerned about the idea that they were going to be killed in in terrorist attacks and were sort of, uh, you know, very, very concerned about that. And so we thought that it would be important to communicate with them about what their real risk was. And the final thing that we did is that we developed about two weeks afterwards a a collaboration with Dr. Sandro Galea, who's one of our our partners in the Mass Violence Center, and colleagues of his at the New York Academy of Medicine to conduct a series of large-scale studies of the mental health impact of the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York.
0: Yeah, we've actually had Dr. Galea on the podcast before to talk about mass violence and public health. Was that really sort of the first time we collaborated with with Andrew?
1: Uh, It was. He had worked with uh, uh, the same survey research firm that we had worked with on many studies, and they suggested that he contact... me or somebody from our center. And I guess I was it uh, uh, to to talk about whether we wanted to collaborate there. And I found him um, I figured out within about 10 seconds, he was probably the smartest person I'd ever talked to and uh, very respectful and uh, together, uh, the three of us really, I mean, his group in New York, uh, SRBI, the survey research firm, and and our center designed a study. We were five weeks we were uh, collecting data in Manhattan, and eight weeks later, we had interviewed a 1,000 people, and then there were several other studies about that that came, came out.
0: So, that and that's kind of where I was going to go next, is um, that's an amazing sort of turnaround given how slow large-scale research usually moves um, in terms of getting funding and all of that kind, uh, all the sort of rigmarole that's inherent in in conducting science, but um, what did we learn about the short and long-term mental health impact of September 11th from those studies?
1: Well, we actually learned an awful lot uh, and it's too much to talk about unless this wants to be a four-hour podcast and I don't expect that we want it to be that long. So let me just hit some of the highlights. One of the things we learned is that direct victims and survivors had increased risk of several mental health problems including post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and they also showed Uh, probably for stress management purposes, increases in tobacco and alcohol use after the 9-11 attack in the months after that. We also found that most of these problems increased among members of the community who were not direct victims. So we suspected that much from our prior work with the uh, LA riot study, but This confirmed that there were people, I mean, even there was, you were less likely to get PTSD and depression if you were an indirect victim just living in the community than you were if you were a direct victim. But there were people within that indirect victim group who did develop problems. Mm -hmm. So overall, given how many people live in New York, the number of indirect victims with these problems was actually higher than the direct victims.
0: So so I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Dean. I just want to clarify a little bit about how how those studies defined direct versus indirect. Like what made someone a direct victim?
1: Well, a direct victim obviously uh, would include people who Had uh, a family member who, or close friend who was injured or killed Mm -hmm. in the attack. It also included people who used to work in those buildings okay. if they were in the sample. Uh, it, it included people who had uh, sort of dramatic financial problems due to the loss of jobs and whatnot uh, you know from, from those buildings. Okay. Indirect victims were and it also included people who actually in person saw uh, the, you know, either the planes crash into the buildings or the buildings come down. And I'm not talking at this point about people on TV seeing it on TV. I'm talking about people who were actually there and running away when they when they c- collapsed. Uh, first responders, by the way, would also be included as direct victims there. Gotcha. Um, third thing that we found was that most people in the community were resilient and did not develop problems, or they got better if they had problems relatively quickly. But there were still many people who had problems even years later. And then finally, we found that there really was a great unmet need for good mental health services. And you can kind of discern that by if you look at people two and three years afterwards, which is what our research did, uh, and you find that they've still got those problems, that means they they either have not gotten mental health services or they have not gotten enough mental health services or the mental health services they got were not really good evidence-based services that have been proven to help people.
0: I know that there, um, in the New York area, there were just tons of new programs to provide mental health services that were initiated post 9-11, I think is an attempt to to meet some of those needs. But even then, I think you're just sort of underscoring how large that problem was. Again, if you think about how many people live in the greater New York area and how many of them developed some, some problems after 9-11. At the uh, NMVVRC, We've developed some close collaborations with some of the folks who've been most affected by 9-11. For example, Mary Fetchett is the co-founder and driving force behind the Voices Center for Resilience. And the Voices Center is is sort of one of the main uh, responding uh, nonprofit agencies related to 9-11. And Mary has been a member of the NMVVRC Stakeholders Forum since there's been a Stakeholders Forum. And I know you work pretty closely with that group. And what have we learned from those relationships about how important it is for those of us who are involved in mass violence, readiness, response, and even resilience? Um, to listen to mass violence victims and survivors like those who were affected by 9-11.
2: Well, you all know that Mary is a personal hero of all of us at our center. Her 24-year-old son, Brad, was an equities trader, and he was on September 11th uh, on the 89th floor of the South Tower. A year later, in 2002, Mary co-founded Voices to, and I'm going to quote their mission, that to create a new paradigm in supplying services that provide a continuity of care for those impacted by a traumatic event. And in addition to sponsoring the 9-11 Living Memorial Project, which is just, it's amazing and inspiring, Voices offers training programs, uh, peer support, victim advocacy, and a couple years ago, um, created a digital library to advance mental health studies and research and all with the focus on long-term resiliency, which is a focus that our center certainly shares. The power of the personal story of victims and survivors of mass violence incidents like, like Mary Fetchett, and this includes international and domestic terrorism, mass shootings, and other mass casualty events. The personal story simply guides victim advocates and other responders to identify what victims need in order to best meet those needs. It's pretty simple. Um, they tell us about the devastating immediate and long-term impact of MVIs on them and on their loved ones. And you know, the education we all have gotten is that this is not something you just get over. Um, there's nobody better than a survivor to identify gaps in services based upon how they were treated in the aftermath of a mass violence incident. And of great interest to them and certainly to us at the center is to help ensure that future victims get the support and services they need that are geared towards their needs. And Dean's gonna, I know he's talking a little bit about lessons learned, listening to victims, those are the most important lessons we can learn. And I'm really proud to say that many of our center's most helpful resources, they've been developed upon recommendations from survivors. For example, um, focusing on their long-term mental health needs, Um, addressing hate motivated mass violence crimes, and recently helping all survivors and communities cope with the trauma cues that a lot of people endure when a new mass violence incident occurs. And if you recall, in March and April, we had six, I think, right in a row. Mm -hmm. So Dean and I are just super grateful to our stakeholders forum that includes many survivors for their always frank and always helpful guidance as we continue to try and meet the needs of those who are most directly impacted by mass violence incidents.
0: Yeah, I I have to underscore that, Anne. I mean, we get to do a lot of really cool things as part of the center, but one of the most moving for me was at at the first stakeholders forum that we were able to hold here in person in Charleston, my team and I got to videotape uh, some of the stakeholders talking about readiness, response, and resilience issues. And just hearing them talk about those events in, in the first person, talk about what happened to them and how it affected them was some of the most moving stuff that I've, I've experienced in my career. Mm. And those videos are, are still available for folks to view on the nmvvrc.org uh, website. They're sort of prominently featured on our front, front page at this point. But you know, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't say a little bit more about the Voices organization that, that Mary leads. Uh, it's really just an amazing, amazing group of people that's organizing a variety of events um, to commemorate the 9-11 20th anniversary this year. If our listeners are interested in learning about some of those events, Um, some of which coincide very directly with the 9-11 anniversary, but others extend for up to a month afterwards. Um, You can visit their website, which is voicescenter.org. That's uh, plural of voice, V-O-I-C-E-S, center, all one word, dot org, slash 20th-anniversary. hyphen anniversary. The hyphen is really important. I left it out when I was checking it out earlier and got a dead link. So it's VoicesCenter.org slash 20th-anniversary um, for more information about what they're doing in and around New York City in remembrance of the 20th anniversary. So Dean, why is an organization like the Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center so important today, fully 20 years after September 11th, to help address what, you know, as Ann was saying, are increasingly frequent mass violence incidents?
1: Well, I think it's important for several reasons. Uh, The most important of which is, is that because the mass violence incidents keep happening, even though we've been fortunate enough not to have a terrorist attack on the scale of 9-11 in the past 20 years, we've certainly had some very large domestic terrorism attacks that are large enough to be very troublesome. So we need our center because basically there are still, you know, victims and survivors and communities and those people who are trying to serve them who need accurate information. And that's really what we're all about. Secondly, we really share, uh, you know, the commitment of voices and, and, and Mary and, and people like her all over the country to trying to promote long-term resilience uh, for survivors as well as for communities as a whole. We have evolved to where we have collected a lot more information than we had 20 years ago. And our center also works very closely with three principal partners, which include the American Hospital Association, which unfortunately uh, gets involved with mass violence uh, immediately after it occurs, the National Governors Association, and also the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And And what we do with those organizations and those partners is really to Try to help leaders plan and, and do so purposefully uh, with, with the notion of that it's really important to include the victim's voice and the victim uh, service provider's voice uh, in those plans so that it'll make sure that responding to the victims and survivors are really at the heart of what we're trying to do. The other thing um, that, that I think we should do is that we really must realize the the vicarious trauma that occurs for all helping professionals who must cope with the stress of the horrors of, of mass violence incidents. I think the COVID uh, pandemic in the last two years has really provided us with another example of that, how the people who are supposed to be helping are needing help themselves because it's just too much for anyone to bear. And then finally, uh, I, I want to just put a plug-in or, or next next to finally, I want to put a plug-in for for our website, which has uh, an incredible amount of information uh, that we have, uh, you know, we've we've brought together in one place that should be of help to anybody. And actually, finally, uh, I just want to say something about 9/11 itself. Um, it was a horrible event, but it also had some very positive outcomes, uh, notwithstanding the, the the horror of it. And one of those was it's the last time that I can remember when we were really united as a nation, and we were all affected by what happened. Both emotionally and intellectually, and we, I guess, fundamentally understood that due to that external threat, we needed to stand together and be united, and uh, and and try to pick each other up. I mean, Anne's example of, uh, of of the kindness of strangers was really important, and I think that in looking back. 20 years ago, those of us who are around have that in our muscle memory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that we could benefit as society now to never forget 9-11, never forget those who were affected by it, including, you know, some of the people who actually went to war because of it and, uh, and, and got, had their own, uh, traumatic events uh, during that war. But I hope that we as a nation can remember that we are resilient and I hope that we can remember that we do best when we're united and realize that that we as a nation, uh, the people of this nation have a lot more in common than we have uh, that separates us.
0: Well, those are just some, some wonderful thoughts, Dean. And thank you for uh, putting that together so eloquently. I. Uh, I I completely agree and do think that that's an important thing for us to, to touch on, to, to sort of take us to the close here. I'm just going to, you, you put in a pitch for the website. I'm going to put in a pitch for something else that the NMDVRC has developed to any of our listeners who might be suffering from the impacts of nine 11 or any, uh, of the subsequent mass violence events that have occurred in the United States. We've developed a, a tool called the Transcend NMVC app that folks can download to their smart device and use as a guide to help cope with some of the lingering long-term symptoms associated with either post-traumatic stress disorder or related phenomenon that that uh, happen after exposure to a mass violence event. The app is free and it's available in both the Android and Apple app stores. And if you are still suffering from uh, any of the effects of 9-11 or other events, we definitely recommend that if if you don't want to seek professional help about that, you you could at least start by downloading the Transcend app and seeing if it's useful for you. Um, Dean, and. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective uh, 20 years after 9-11. I think you've really made terrific points about where we were and what the the tragedy of 9-11 has, has wrought um, in, in terms of negatives and positives on the population of the United States. And uh, we, we thank you for listening and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Dan.
2: Thank you, Dan.
0: This has been the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Thank you so much for listening.